But if your body is storing excess fat, the the narrative that that society tells us is that it's storing excess fat because you're eating too much and you're not moving enough, i.e. you're greedy and lazy. And that's not true. It is absolutely not true. Retirement. That's what we're all aiming at, right? But exactly what does that mean? It conjures up visions of endless days of golf, drinks with little umbrellas in them on a tropical beach, feet up, reading a book. Is that what it's all about? I don't think so. Life would get pretty dull after a while without anything meaningful to do, don't you think? I'm Jackie Doucette, and I'm on a mission to discover exactly what life is like beyond retirement. Join me while I chat with people who've already done it, who've retired to something rather than from something. Let's find out together exactly what's waiting for us when we say goodbye to that nine to five. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Retirement. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Lucy Burns. Dr. Burns is a general practice and lifestyle medicine physician located in Australia, and she helps women in midlife balance their mind and body through low-carb, real food programs. At her clinic, through her online business, Real Life Medicine, and on her Real Health and Weight Loss podcast, she helps women unlearn toxic diet culture and tap into science that promotes long-lasting health and permanent weight loss. Since her own shift to a low-carb, real food lifestyle in 2018 and its success, Lucy has helped hundreds of women achieve low-carb eating through real whole foods with her 12-week mind-body rebalance program. With her colleague, Dr. Mary Barson, she runs successful online programs that address both the physiological and psychological causes of weight gain and obesity. Dr. Lucy, thanks for joining me today. Oh, Jackie, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So I didn't go into a lot of detail about your life and your struggles in the intro. Before we go too far, I'd like to share with the listeners that you're living with muscular dystrophy, and it began to mm-hmm. impact your ability and um, your ability to exercise and keep weight gain at bay. Can you talk a little bit about your previous life and what the change to your new lifestyle has meant for you personally? Absolutely. So I think um, if I go back a little bit, I I was probably like lots of your listeners. I started my first diet at 16 and I look back and I think, oh, I wasn't overweight at all. I had a BMI of 21. It was the, I was, I was healthy, but I didn't feel that I, I felt that I was fat. And so, you know, my long illustrious dieting career started then and I, you know, did all of the, all of the diets and all of the gym work. So I was, you know, it was the, it was the eighties. So I was an aerobics aficionado with, you know, complete with leotard and leg warmers and um, exercise for me was entirely about uh, being thin, nothing to do with good, how I felt. Um, And in fact, I didn't even I didn't even tap into that. It was all in that mindset of, you know, no pain, no gain, go hard, go home. Um, And my food was nothing about nutrition. It was all just about restriction because, you know, if I was hungry, that meant I'd be thinner. And it just, just, you know, I look back now and just think, oh, my God. Um, And balancing that then with 
deprivation mindset meant that I would go for periods where I was either really strict and perfect on a diet or I was just on a bender, eating everything in sight before I started the next diet. And so for so long, my weight just yo-yoed up and down, up and down. And it was quite exhausting, you know, lots of brain chatter about food, about when, you know, everything was all about the food. Um, I loved social events because they were like legitimate reasons to eat. You know, I didn't have to resort to my usual sneaky eating, which was one of my, you know, great tricks on myself when I wasn't on a diet. Of course, when I was on a diet, I was, I had bloody willpower, you know, nerves of steel and people would go, oh, you're so strict. And I'd wear that like a badge of honor. So just this really, you know, I was like Jekyll and Hyde. And the result of all of this fabulous dieting was that by the time I was in my late 40s, I was the heaviest I'd ever been, heavier than when I was nine months pregnant. I had fatty liver disease and prediabetes. And because of my muscular dystrophy, I could no longer use my previous tools, which were just to flog myself um, with exercise to burn off whatever food I'd eaten. It was like exercise was either, you know, to negate the food I'd eaten or even worse, a punishment for what I'd eaten. So I just, um, I, you know what? I was actually about to give up on myself and I just thought, ah, oh, you know, I'm just going to buy elastic-waisted pants. My husband still loves me. It doesn't matter. I'm middle-aged and frumpy. Who cares? And I was, I was accepting of that. And that, and I still, at some state, at some level, do accept. Well, I, I now accept my body because it's far from perfect. Um, but, but what I, I didn't and, and couldn't accept was actually that my metabolic health had now changed and that I now had fatty liver disease and prediabetes. And I thought, oh. Um, as a doctor, I have seen so many people work hard in their careers and, you know, or, or even in their um, child, you know, if they're child rearing, all of the things that you do when, you, when you're young and then they get to retirement and spend all their time going to doctors, outpatients, having operations, spending all their money on medicine. And I just thought, oh, I don't want to be that. So I just had to do something. So um, it was funny. I actually was on holiday with a friend, a good friend of mine who did medicine with me, and she was, you know, looking so strong and healthy. And I go, what are you doing? She goes, I'm doing a low carb. I've just ditched the carbs. And I asked her a bit about it. And, you know, she was telling me about, about limiting fruit. And in my brain, I'm going, oh, I'm not doing that. Don't be ridiculous. And, and I was sitting there piously eating my bag of carrots. And <laughs> um, then I was watching what she was eating. And I'm going, oh, my God, that food looks amazing because she's eating you know, she's eating steak with kind of blue cheese sauce on it and all of this amazing food. And so I just um, I just started looking into it and it was like an epiphany and I haven't looked back. That's amazing. And it sounds like you're every woman. I mean, we all did the same thing. We, we either hated our body because we were too thin or hated our body because we were too fat, even though we were just perfect. Yes, 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 it, absolutely. And I think it's, um, you know, I, I know that it's part of being a human. You know, if you've got straight hair, you want curly hair. If you've got curly hair, you want straight hair. And, I, and, and you know, it is normal to do some amount of comparison, but I hadn't realised how just in, entrenched I was in, in diet culture and doing, you know, this, you know, I, 
I, I went to Weight Watchers for, I was a life member of Weight Watchers and I just re- remember this saying that we all had to say, which was nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. And it was like, ah, oh, yeah. And now I look back, oh, my God, it's just, it's just, and, you know, all this demonising. So you got stuck into that guilt-shame cycle and just really, really unhelpful thinking. So for us now, um, we spend a lot of time un- undoing diet culture but and and helping people and particularly women. So men, I mean, we do help men, but men don't usually have the diet culture history with them. Most men haven't done a lot of dieting. They never, you know, they weren't going to Weight Watchers meetings. They they just did their thing. Um, but for women, we have to unlearn that, you know, your worth is not about the number on the scales and that you're, you can choose what you eat to help your health and help you feel better and it's not about looking better. And that's a hard thing to learn. Oh, of course, because for 40 years or however long we've, and, and it's still happening. I mean, it's not that it's, nothing's changed. Society still judges women in particular and it's doing it more now to men as well on their, on their worth is how they look. You know, we know that thinness and attractiveness sells products and we know that particularly for women, one, particularly once you reach menopause, it's like you're worth, you're not worth anything anymore. You can't sell anything. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's a big cultural um, shift that needs to happen around particularly women, but anybody who's who's getting older because we now live in a, in a culture where, you know, maybe we're not, well, I think I still think we're focusing on thin, but we're also focusing on youth, youthfulness. And if you're old, then somehow you're worthless. It's like, huh, so ridiculous. Like if, you, if you're not getting any older, you're dead. They're the only options. And so why do we then demonize this natural, normal process that has so many wonderful benefits? I'd like to hear all about the programs that, that I've seen on your website. But first, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the science of the, um, of the programs, of the of the yep. um, lifestyle that you're advocating? What makes it so special? What makes it so good for us? So we know, I mean, look, we know that the health of the world, I was going to, you know, it's not limited to Western cultures. It's all cultures. The uh, Our rates of obesity are increasing. And I'm always mindful of the obesity word because it has been demonized and used as a slur for people. So it can be very triggering. But if your body is storing excess fat, the the narrative that that society tells us is that it's storing excess fat because you're eating too much and you're not moving enough, i.e. you're greedy and lazy. And that's not true. It is absolutely not true. So what's happened is that over time, and our dietary guidelines have have encouraged this, we have moved to a low-fat, high-carbohydrate-based diet um, with maybe, you know, moderate protein. And what the result of that is that our insulin levels over time have increased. So insulin is a hormone that's made in our pancreas and its job is to metabolize carbohydrates. So sugars and starches, its job is to do that, which is great. It's perfect. It moves those products into muscles for energy, a little bit into the liver, but then the rest, the rest gets put into storage, 
i.e. into our fat stores, which is a very perfect system, except that what's happening is that people's insulin levels are getting higher and higher and higher. And insulin has a little side gig of blocking fat storage. So if you've got high circulating insulin levels, you actually can't get your fat stores, like you can't use them. So you're just lugging them around for nothing because they're unable to be utilized. And so the you're then relying on, on food to actually eat, sorry, food to power your body. So in my mind, it's like, it's a bit like having to stop at a petrol station every, you know, 10 kilometres to get fuel because you can't access the fuel that's in your tank. So it does mean that people eat more, but they're not doing it because they're greedy. They're doing it because physiologically they cannot get their stored fuel. So one of our favourite sayings is always to remind people it's, it's not your fault. This is your physiology. It's come about because of our dietary guidelines and supercharged in there with processed food companies and their, their manky marketing, which tell us that you can have a little bit of this food as part of a balanced diet, but then they make their food hyper palatable and highly addictive. And so shifting the blame. So the combination then between our increased reliance on carbohydrates, and let's face it, you know, up until I ate this way, I ate, even when I was being, you know, air quotes, good, my diet was still using a lot of carbs because I was low fat. And I'm sure you all remember that, you know, you'd, you'd put your toast, dry toast um, with some sort of diet jam on it. And, you know, everything was carbs. They're, they're easy, they're quick, they're cheap, but they're just not helpful. They give you that little boost of energy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you can't get your own stores. So they do give you energy. There's absolutely no doubt about it. So the the ideal way a body should work is that if we're, and the phrase we use is metabolically flexible. So if your insulin levels are nice and low, what you should be able to do is you, you use a little bit of carbs and that'll give you a little bit of energy, but you should be able to dip into your fat stores to sustain you so that you don't actually need to eat all the time, which is the other thing that we were told, you know, three meals and three snacks a day. It's like you're constantly eating. And actually our physiology is not designed for that. We're not grazers. We're not like cows. We don't need to ruminate. We have actually got really good mechanisms to be able to eat and then not eat and still have plenty of energy. So how, how does that work? I mean, I've, I've been told all, you know, all the time, like everyone else, it's better to have, you know, five or six small meals through, uh, through the course of the day. Yeah. I'm so hungry in the evening. It happens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because all that, so the analogy that I love, this is my favorite analogy, which I think will help help your listeners maybe, is I imagine if you imagine your body's like a fireplace. So a fireplace will use two forms of fuel. It'll use kindling and logs. Now the kindling is like your carbohydrates. They burn quickly. They give you energy, but they don't last long. So you have to keep fueling them. So if all you had was kindling, you'd have to fuel it all day, which is is really so carbohydrates. That's that's what we do. You know, we have breakfast cereal, toast, orange juice. That's all carbohydrate. You'll have you know muffin for morning tea. That's carbohydrate. You'll have a sandwich, apple. They're all carbohydrates. Afternoon tea might even be a piece of fruit or a piece of you know biscuit or something. Even a 
drink, coffee, milk, that's all carbohydrates. So you're constantly just putting kindling on. Ideally, what we should be doing is a little bit of kindling and then our body will put its own logs on. Now, for some people, and again, these are people with high insulin. So most people who are overweight now have high insulin. So their logs are not next to the fireplace. They're in what we like to call the woodshed. So the woodshed is your fat store. So you toddle out to your woodshed and you can see all these lovely logs lined up, all ready to burn. And you've got to open the door and the door is locked. And the lock is insulin. It's padlocked. Some people will have one lock. Some people who have very high levels of insulin will have five or six or seven locks. So you can't get them. So you come back to your fireplace, which by now is dwindling and it's, you know, you're tired, you're hungry, you might be a bit hangry, your brain can't think properly. We all know that. And so you go and eat. And if you leave it too long, you almost feel like you could eat your arm off, but you go and your brain will then look for something quick. So that'll be something like a biscuit. It'll just grab because it's desperate by now. And so what we want to do is by reducing the carbohydrates, so reducing your pile of kindling, what that actually does is unlock your woodshed. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes a little bit of time, not long, but a little bit. So we always say to people, so you need to bring in some fats at first, reasonably high fat, which feels really weird. Um, I remember when I first had it, I was thinking, oh, my God, this, this is so weird, but, oh, I'm going to go for it. So, you know, I ate lots of high-fat foods, bacon and eggs, but also protein, lots of protein in there. And then your woodshed opens. You don't need to then eat so many logs because your body will burn its own. So you then reduce the fat and you focus on protein because we love our body loves protein. We, we've again, women chronically undernourished with protein because I was vegetarian for at some stage because I thought meat would make me fat. Like just look back and go, oh my God. So protein, which, you know, it doesn't have to be a meat-based protein. It can be tofu or tempeh or any of those sorts of things, but you pick your protein, you add a few veggies. If the, if, if the protein is very lean, say like an eye fillet, you might put some, some fat on your veggies, some butter, bit of garlic butter on your steak or something, add some, some flavors, some herbs and salt, and that's it. So simple, doesn't have to be fancy. So you're saying um, people who are just starting this have to, you know, add a little bit. They have to add the extra fat to kind of mm. release, open open that woodshed, release things. How, um, I guess you can't say just kind of on average because everyone is different, but what kind of time frame are you looking at? that people would need to be doing this sort of thing before they can see a difference and, and have, you know, and know that it's time to maybe you know, cut back a little bit. Yeah. So we have, um, we're I'm always saying ladies open your woodshed. You actually, so part of combining the, the physiology of the process with the psychology. So part of the psychology is learning to listen to your body again. Because again, we, we, we didn't listen to it. You know, the body was telling us, you know, you're hungry, Lucy. I don't care. I'm getting thin. I don't care. <laughs> um, and so you actually tune back in and your hunger signals return. So 
when you have this beautiful combination of some protein with some fat, it's very satiating, which means it keeps, gets you full and keeps you full. So if you can tune into that, your hunger and your fullness signals and not override them. So it's perfectly fine to eat if you're hungry, but the key is also to stop when you're full. Because when I grew up, we were encouraged to eat everything on your plate. Food wastage was like a mortal sin. Children starving in Africa, you must eat everything on your plate. And so even when you're full, you're finishing it up. And so basically you're overfueling then. So learning to, to read the signals. So, so what tends to happen is that people, and this is it, and I know, you know, we often joke about bacon and eggs because everyone goes, oh, my God, are you sure I can have that? And I go, yeah, yeah, have that. <laughs> And then they'll come in after a couple of weeks and go, or, or, you know, we'll talk online and they'll go, I can't stand bacon and eggs anymore. I don't want to eat them. And I go, oh, your woodshed's open. Because when, you're, when your body doesn't want to eat fat and protein, it's because it has enough fuel already. That's interesting. And, yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, it's so fascinating, our, our, our brain. So, in Australia, we have these biscuits called Tim Tams, which are like our iconic. They're sort of the Oreo of Australia. And um, and everybody knows about Tim Tams. And I, I did a little comparison. So nine Tim Tams has the same calories as 12 eggs. Now, I can eat nine Tim Tams pretty easily. And, in fact, the packet has 11. So you're probably going to finish them off. But I can tell you now there's no way I can eat 12 eggs. You get to about three and you go, oh, yeah, I'm done now because your body's got it, what it needs. It's got the fat, it's got the protein, it's got the vitamins, it's happy. But, you know, the processed carbohydrates, particularly processed carbohydrates override, but even normal, like st- what people would call standard, you know, a bowl of pasta, nobody, nobody eats pasta out of a little bowl. There's these gigantic pasta bowls that have been invented for them because they just don't fill you up. You know, you're relying on the stretch receptors, you're relying on volume and bulk to fill you. But actually hunger and satiety are, horm- are hormonal. Like that was another light bulb. I'm thinking, what? Yeah, so they're they're all to do with hormones, metabolic hormones that that determine your hunger and satiety. So I think this is information that a lot of people haven't received before. Um, I've heard bits and pieces of it, and I'm sure other people have too. Mm. You've got a lot of different programs available for people who want to learn more and who want to kind of get off their yo-yo diet and that sort of thing. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Absolutely. So we have our 12-week program, which is our signature program. And it basically, I mean, it's not a diet program. I always say to people, this is not a diet. It's teaching you, you know, it's unlearning diet culture, teaching you what, what do you do to fuel your body? What do you do to feel good? The side effect of all of this is weight loss. People lose, they do lose weight. Absolutely. 100%. But it it's not our main focus. So it's not weight loss at any cost because we've all done that. Weight loss at any cost was denial, starving, all of that. So it's not about that. It's really about re- reframing it all and nourishing it. So it includes um, everything, you know, you need to know about low-carb eating, but also all the other things that actually impact these insulin levels because it's not just 
the food. Our busy, stressful lives have an enormous role to play in insulin resistance. So we had spent a lot of time talking about stress management and how to really, I guess, work with your mind to reduce these, um, again, more hormones and neurotransmitters that impact your metabolic health. We talk about intermittent fasting, which I used to think was some sort of cruel punishment. It's actually wonderfully healthful, <laughs> if done properly, healthful way to um, help your body. But the most important thing we do in all of this is really mindset management because there are so many stories that we've had in our mind around um, deprivation, fear, scarcity, um, unpacking all of the things, food pressures, you know, when you go to somewhere or someone buy, they give you a piece of cake and they go, come on, have the cake and you don't want the cake. And you're going, oh, I don't want the cake. They're going, but I've made it for you. And there's this sort of conflict and pressure. And we talk all about that sort of stuff so that you can actually do the things that, that you need to do to help your body, not just for the 12 weeks, but ongoing. So we run that three times a year. And that's a very interactive, intense touch point program. Um, but we do have uh, an what we call an evergreen, a, a program that just runs all the time, which is really for people that are just want to know about low-carb eating and how to do it safely and properly. Because again, you'll get everyone putting their two cents in about, oh my God, you can't eat that, all that saturated fat that's going to kill you. This is terrible. Um, and there's a lot of science now to, um, un, uh, to, to recognize low-carb eating as a healthful way to eat and not a harmful way. Um, so, and then it, well, for lots of our women, because, and again, I, I'm, I'm so just drawn to women because I feel like we just had the raw end of the deal, particularly back in the eighties and even before that, um, you know, with this, your worth is only, you know, you're only good if you look like in Australia, we had Elle McPherson, but you know, Naomi Campbell, any of those thin models, um, and so unlearning diet culture, learning to recognize your worth, learning to um, put boundaries in so that you can do the things you need to do to look after yourself instead of looking after everyone else, because that's what women are very good at doing. We're very good carers and we care for everybody, but, but not us. So we do have an ongoing membership, which we usually offer to people after the 12-week mind-body rebalance so that they've just got somewhere that's beautiful and nurturing to help help. And we do, we have, um, we, we have, because we're in Australia, we actually have people from all over the world. So we have two time slots to account for the two time to the two time zone. So that, that uh, we just love it. Absolutely love it. That sounds wonderful. And, and I know you mentioned it, but it is open to men as well. If they want to learn this sort of stuff, it's just absolutely it's geared toward the mindset of the woman who has been dieting all her life and doesn't know why nothing's working. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really, and and really to help also with emotional eating, like that's a, such a big role. And it's really interesting. There's a quite a, a growing um, sector of men who, you know, most people define emotional eating as a, as a female problem um, or a female issue. It's not even really a problem as a, a set of people. It's not, it's not terrible. You haven't murdered anybody. You haven't ripped off, <laughs> you know, done an internet scam, but it's just a, a tool that served you well at some stage in your life that is no longer serving you. So then we just go, okay, well, let's come up with some ways to 
to unlearn that tool and relearn a new tool. But interestingly, there's a, a sector of men, I think, who have emotional eating, who don't have anywhere to go. Like they, they don't have any support because for men, they usually are more likely to go and have a drink, you know, meet the blokes down the pub for a beer um, and, and not talk about anything. Um, but there is, I've, I see a lot now of men with emotional eating as well. Yeah, I don't think that it's uh, segregated to one sex or the other. Definitely. No, 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 definitely not. So, yeah, so definitely the 12-week. We, we love to have men in the 12-week program, absolutely. Momentum is just for women, but the, the 12-week is for everybody, and it's wonderful. So, oh, well, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bit biased, of course, but the way uh, – <laughs> but for us, so my, my gorgeous – um, colleague Dr. Mary and I, we, we run it. We, there are live sessions there. And it's just, I think it's just so um, uplifting. You know, it's such a kind, everyone's kind. There's no judgment. We don't have, you know, when you go sometimes in Facebook groups and everyone's so mean and it's really um, can be quite toxic. We, we have none of that. We just have this beautiful community where everybody um, is encouraging and, and people are at different points points in their journey and that's okay too and that's uh it's so hard to remember sometimes that you know everybody's on their own journey and you know the things that you say even if you don't realize that they're hurting could be hurting someone so why not just be nice uh absolutely and you know i think it's um you know it, there's no right or wrong this is what i always say to people there's no right or wrong uh, what works for one person may not work for another person. It's working out what is helpful to you. Now, we all engage in behaviours that are, are ultimately unhelpful to us. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means that they're probably not going to help us long term. And so then it's about coming up with some really beautiful nurturing strategies to change those behaviours and knowing that you don't always get it right first go, even second go, sometimes you'll do it for a while and then you'll go back to your old behavior. That's not a failure. That's just, you know, it's just part of normal learning. Exactly. Yeah. So talk to a little bit about how changing your diet, your lifestyle from eating all those carbs all the time because they give you energy, they fill you up quickly to a low carb real foods, not the processed yeah. foods, real foods has made a change and can make a change in just about anybody's life. Do you have anything that you would like to say to the listeners, keeping in mind that they're probably on the upper upper end of the midlife range, most of them, mm-hmm. how can they, how can they change their lifestyle now? And is it worth it? Uh Oh, absolutely worth it. So it's interesting. So lots of our um, uh, the people, a lot of people we have we we do serve different sectors of the community, but a lot a lot are in their sort of sixties, mid sixties, late sixties, seek of diet culture, but also have now potentially um, become unwell. You know, with maybe type two diabetes, pre diabetes, fatty liver disease, hypertension. They're on, you know, six or seven, eight medications. The greatest joy for me is looking at these. You, you, can, you can get rid of a lot of your medications by changing what you do. I think that, um, you know, I work one-on-one with people with type 2 diabetes or with through the programs we give people a letter to take to their doctor because they can absolutely reverse 
the their diabetes. Like I was just one of the, and again, you know, they, they post in the groups. It's so fun. But uh, a, a lady posted she's got type 2 diabetes. Her hemoglobin A1C, which is your three-month measure of how well your diabetes is controlled, was 11. So not, not very well controlled. She did low carb and it's now down to 5.2, which is not just pre-diabetic, it's normal. She's actually reversed her diabetes. The other thing that happens when you really focus on that real food is that your, your thinking is clearer. Your brain energy is restored. So you're, you know, if you're finding that that your memory's a bit woolly or that you keep forgetting to do things or that you just can't concentrate as often, it's and then sometimes what people will do is think, oh, I can't concentrate. So they eat and then they'll get that brain energy and they'll go, oh good, now I can concentrate. That's because of insulin resistance. You're needing to almost kind of force glucose into the brain to get enough energy. Changing it means that your body, your insulin levels go down and your body doesn't need as much glucose and you're thinking like your brain health is better. So, you know, everything gets better, blood pressure, you know, and so many, that's usually the first medication to go, the blood pressure meds. As soon as you, it's not that you've lost the weight, it's reducing the insulin has phenomenal long-term and short-term health effects. So for someone who is fairly healthy, not, you know, doesn't have high blood pressure, doesn't have diabetes, doesn't have any real health concerns going on, their weight is okay, would you still recommend this kind of diet or should, you know, should they just continue keeping that in the back of their mind for later when they have a problem? Uh, I, we, so it's, it's interesting. So there's no real definition of, of what low carb eating is. Um, for some of our members that have very, very low carbohydrate intake, you know, and it may only be 30 or 40 grams. If, if you're metabolically flexible, you don't need to do that. But I would probably say that the current recommendations, which are around that 250 grams, are probably still a bit high for us. Because again, we've been, we thought that low fat was going to keep us healthy and it actually hasn't. Fat is a really essential macronutrient, has lots of goodness, great for brain health. Fatty acids, you know, omega-3, omega-6, we've heard of those. You, you can't, you can only get them from eating some fat. But good fats, not the processed rubbish, trans fats or seed oils, but just fats from, you know, your diet. Like it can be your dairy, your cheese. It can be, um, you know, a little bit of fat on your meat is all right. You may not, you know, you may not like, like I don't particularly like pork belly. It's, it's too, I just don't like, it's too much fat for me, but I'm, it's taste. Not, I'm not worried about the actual content of it. You know, you can have avocado, you can have nuts. All of those things have beautiful essential fatty acids and fat soluble vitamins. So, so I would sort of say to people, look, rather than having a low fat diet or a low carb diet, if you're metabolically flexible, you're strong, you're healthy, prioritize your protein, have some fat, have some carbs, but have them not, you know, again, real food carbs. So, you know, for, for, it might be potato, pasta, um, some bread, that sort of stuff is fine. If, if that's not the, the foundation of your diet. So I think what a lot of people do is they'll have, you know, a bowl of pasta with some, you know, tomato sauce on it. And there's no, 
no protein in that really at all. A couple of veggies maybe, but um, yeah, get your protein in. Protein for for aging is so important because, and I'm sure you've spoken about this on your on your episodes, but our muscle mass shrinks every single year. And as our muscles shrink, obviously our risk of falls gets uh, greater and, you know, falls are the biggest cause of morbidity in, in, in older people. And they, you know, how to wreck your retirement, break your hip. Exactly. Yeah. Strength training. And, and again, you know, we don't talk a lot about, we don't teach people strength training. That's not our uh, expertise, but we bang on about it because it's so important just to try and be as strong as you can. Now, again, I, I have, I've got muscular dystrophy. I can't do strength training. There's no, there's no strength that will, there's no exercise that will sadly. Um, and, but if, if you don't have any underlying, you know, um, muscle condition or MS or anything like that, if you've got, if you've got the ability to do strength training, it is the most wonderful thing that you can do for your body and, you know, and your life, because that's how you get to do stuff. Even if you've got knee pain, just getting stronger muscles will improve the knee pain, no end. And the protein in your diet is going to help with the stronger muscles for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think all of us, you know, most of us will agree that we'd like to live another 30 years after we hit that retirement point. So why not make it the best we can? Uh a hundred percent, Jackie, because, you know, medicine is very good now at keeping people alive. We've got lots of medications. We've got lots of interventions. We can keep you alive for a very long time, but at, at what quality, yeah. you know, that's, no, you, don't want you, that. you can, no, you want, if you're going to live 30 and we all will, we'll all be, you know, living to 90, you, you want to be doing it fit, strong, as healthy as possible. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that there are, you know, people get, have conditions that, you know, I often say, you know, I use my own story in this, that you can't change the cards you're dealt, but you can change the way you play them. Yeah, exactly. That's perfect. Thank you very much, Dr. Lucy, for joining me today. I think, uh, I know you've taught me a lot. I think you've probably taught a lot of people a lot about a healthier lifestyle. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for, for having me on, Jackie. It's been wonderful. And, um, you know, I guess if people are wanting to see you know have a look at what we do at we're on all the socials at real life medicine or um our website is rlmedicine.com rl for real life but rlmedicine.com perfect i'll make sure it's in the show notes so that everybody can find you oh thank you thank you i really appreciate it and thank you so much for having me it's been wonderful and that's it for this episode of beyond retirement thank you so much for hanging out with me I hope you enjoyed it. To check out the video interviews, please go to my YouTube channel at bit.ly forward slash beyond retirement. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash beyond retirement. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss any new episodes.